0: My name is Justin McClue and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. I'd
1: like to say that the zombies are a symbol of uh, (laughs) patriarchal capitalism.
0: Mm, Okay, thanks for uh, clearing that up for me. And that's it for this week. (laughs) Who's the episode on? We're doing an episode on George Romero. Rest in peace. Who recently passed away last week. Who happens to be the man who made my favorite film of all time, no question. And he's also a man. And that film is Bruiser. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Is who, what is identity? You don't know, but Bruiser is going to explore those questions. Yeah. But that brings up a good point that George Romero gets talked a lot about in the context of Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, and Day of the Dead. Mm-hmm. Everything else is just kind of, you know, the other movies people watch.
1: And I have to admit that uh, for most of my life, that's kind of been my attitude around him, which I know is wrong, but I'm mostly unfamiliar with his non-zombie movies, even though his zombie movies have always been very important to me.
0: The thing about George Romero is that he never really had a chance to penetrate mainstream filmmaking in the way that you would have thought he would have, having made Night and Dawn and Day of the Dead. He was always an independent figure in everything that he did. And a very regional figure, too. Mm -hmm. So many of his early to
1: mid-period movies are very Pennsylvania-centric movies. So many of his late period movies are very (laughs) Toronto-centric movies. There are some studio movies in between there, but um, they are on the low end of reputability for the studio system.
0: So George Romero started his career uh, doing commercials and industrials, creating a kind of commune around creating this kind of art. And they always wanted to make movies. And the first movie that they ended up making was Night of the Living Dead. That was not their first choice. George Romero was actually shopping around a Bergman-esque art house drama about a young man going through, I believe, a plague-riddled countryside looking for love. This seems to be the case of so many of these guys, like
1: Wes Craven, John Carpenter. They had aspirations to make quote-unquote real movies, uh, and they got into horror as... A stepping stone and then they stay, had to stay in horror for the rest of their career.
0: Well, Night of Living Dead was a movie that came together in a way that George Romero almost didn't direct it because he and his gang of pals said they were going to collectively direct it mm. and do it together. But, you know, George Romero ended up taking the reins and it did become... His picture, um, you can read about the making of Night of Living Dead in like a thousand books. There's multiple feature-length documentaries on it. And you know the movie. It's a classic. There's no doubt about that. What's your relationship to it? It was a movie that my dad talked about endlessly. My dad is not much of a cinephile. He likes movies. If they come on, he'll enjoy them. He'll laugh. He'll forget about them. But Night of Living Dead is one that he kept bringing up and going, when I was a kid, I saw it in Toronto at a theater that's now long defunct. And he said that it scared him so much. And then he had to bike home past a graveyard. Mm. And it just terrified him. Obviously enough to keep bringing it up to me. So when we got a DVD player, one of the first discs he bought was one of those uh, bootleg Night of the Living Dead ones. I believe
1: from the company Mattacy. Was that's it right. Not? Yeah. I had Gold
0: the very, trim. I have the same one at Hollywood Classics Collection. <laughs> and I remember watching it and going, huh, that's not as crazy as my dad made it out to be. Mostly because I'm a teenager. And it's in black and white. And it's not this nightmare that he kind of explained to me so many times. Well, I was 10 years
1: old when I first saw it on the Madnessy DVD. And I was actually a little relieved at the end that I wasn't as scared as I was (laughs) was worried there might be. But I was deeply impressed by the film. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the the ending is a real punch in the gut. I mean, it feels repetitive to talk about what's great about the movie because it's like one of the most iconic horror movies of all time, one of the most dissected movies of all time. But Uh, So much is made about how Romero is this figure who uh, infused the horror genre with higher ambitions, infused it with social satire and he'll be social commentary the
0: first one to say oh yeah i just kind of put that in because it was important to me these weren't his driving you know goals well this is what's great
1: about night of the living dead is it's a very 1968 film -hmm. and yet it's an accidentally 1958 film so you've got the black protagonist who was just cast because he was the best actor that's what that's what they say Mm -hmm. but just the act of casting him yeah big deal whether they admit it or not is a, a defiant gesture in those times You've got the kind of uh, nuclear family in the film, the patriarchal nuclear family with this blustering, ineffectual father figure. You've got the wife who is stuck in her role and you've got the daughter who's sick. So, you know, this traditional authority structure is subverted. The woman who you think
0: is going to be the heroine. Which really bothered me as a kid. Yeah. That you spend so much time with her. And then she kind of takes a step back completely from the narrative because she goes comatose.
1: And uh, something that Robin Wood pointed out, I'll probably be referring to Robin Wood a lot in this episode. Who considers Day of the Dead one of his favorite films of all time. The great uh, Toronto York University film theorist Robin Wood, he pointed out that there's the young couple who is supposed to survive. They're always the future in these films, but they're killed first.
0: Yeah, and that was shocking when it happened. I'm like, wait, are they dead? Uh, was did they get away from the explosion? Nope, they're just gone.
1: And then the film ends famously with this this posse who have, who are going around and shooting all the zombies, accidentally shooting Dwayne Jones, the black protagonist. A very loaded image, and then throwing him on the fire.
0: Did you ever see the remake of Night of the Living Dead that Romero produced and Tom Savini directed? I did not, but I'm glad he got some money out of it. But that one ends with the lead female protagonist, uh, who's more of a Ripley-like figure, escaping the house at the end and pointing out that the father figure is probably a zombie, so the cops shoot him. <laughs> I mean, I mean that's nice. Yeah, uh, I mean it's a fine film. Uh, there's actually been a million remakes of Night of the Living Dead. Because, as we pointed out at the beginning, it's kind of weirdly in the public domain, but not really. Well, because Romero didn't bother to put a copyright notice. Well, supposedly the way that it went was they had a different title. The distributor cut cut the title card, which had the copyright notice. And then because of that, it ended up going into the public domain. I'm sure there's a lot of little intricacies that I'm missing. And it also feels like everybody kind of accepted it was in the public domain. Mm-hmm. So Romero and the people who made it just had to throw their hands up eventually and go, well, I guess this is it. Did you ever see the notorious
1: 30th anniversary edition? I did not.
0: That was the one that was spearheaded by John Russo, one of the writers of Night of Living Dead, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, that's right. And it came out in 1999 and... Uh, Russo and a couple of other people took the movie and cut out some scenes and just filmed 20 or 30 minutes of new footage and then re-edited the film and put on a new score in a com- an, an exercise of complete pointlessness. Well, the reason
0: that they did it was that they would have copyright over that film. Right. And I still see that version in, you know, dollar DVD bins. I, I actually time. never saw it because I-, I read about what it was. And I went, who I don't want that version of the DVD. I
1: rented it once out of curiosity. And of course, it's just... Garbage. Appalling. Yeah. Uh, I, I remember that um, uh, the great Harry Knowles, uh, <laughs> godfather of the podcast, baby, uh, Harry Knowles did this really angry review at the time who said, like, anybody who leaves a comment defending this movie is banned from Ain't It Cool News. So oh, no! <laughs> yeah. Did you ever read Roger Ebert's review of Night of the Living Dead?
0: I did. Yeah. Where basically he's reacting with horror to the fact that kids are watching it in the audience he wrote it for reader's digest <laughs> you know the pinnacle of uh, film and, criticism
1: and the the opening paragraph is something like it's it had been a while since i'd been to see a horror movie so i thought i'd go slum it at the local grindhouse or something like
0: oh that. roger Ebert! Yeah.
1: and but he, when he published this review on his website he has he has this paragraph at the beginning where he says Uh, This review was a review of the audience more than the film. I actually admire the film and have seen it several times since.
0: Oh, yeah. You can say that now, Roger. Yeah. yeah.
1: (laughs) So your favorite movie of all time is Dawn of the Dead. Yes. What is it about that film?
0: Uh, It's multiple things. I should explain at first how it made such an impact on me, which was I was at the video store, Roger's Video, uh, wandering around their cult section. And my dad said what he always says. He goes, take your time to pick a movie. Two minutes later, he comes back and goes, why haven't you picked a movie yet? Just pick anything. We're getting out of here. <laughs> so I looked over at the cover of a weird pasty-faced man slowly getting up out of bed. It said Dawn of the Dead. I went, oh, that's a sequel to Night of Living Dead. I, you know what? I'm going to check it out. Picked it up. As we did at the time, my entire family watched the movie. Oh, man. It ended, and my dad went, huh, that was weird. Got up, went on with his day. I just sat there thinking and going, man, man. That was great. I'm going to... I I want to look more into this. So I sat down on the computer, did something I never did before, which is I did research on a movie. Wow. Which ended up at zombiekeeper.com. I think I went to bed at 4 a.m. that night. This
1: is like your Batman Begins. (laughs) Yes, it is.
0: And just going at zombiekeeper.com, which unfortunately doesn't exist anymore. And they actually had like a top 20 movies you should see, horror movies. And I remember being fascinated by Peter Jackson's Dead Alive. So the next day I went, Dad can I have one of those Rogers coupons in the booklet we buy every year? Do we have a free movie this month? He went, sure, yeah. Went to Rogers, picked up Dead Alive, and when they looked at the copy, it had that panther with the R on it, mm. and they went, how old are you? And I picked a random date out of my head. And they went, okay, yeah, you're old enough. And I'm like, whew. <laughs> and that was the first time I lied about my age. And the first time that I consciously went to go get a movie on my own. And it was sealed after that. Wow! And that does sound like I'm speaking from a point of nostalgia. Because the movie made such an impact. But I have watched it over and over and over again since then. And I think what Dawn of the Dead so does so perfectly. Is that it has all that social commentary. It takes time for character work. It's over two hours in its uh, theatrical version. This
1: version that I saw this
0: week was the two and a half hour
1: extended cut.
0: Oh, so you watched the one with no Goblin score then.
1: Uh, It had, I think, like a couple of moments of Goblin score in it. But otherwise, it was mostly library music. Yeah,
0: which George Romero loves. And it also has Some of the same library music as Monty Python and the Holy Grail, (laughs) in
1: fact. (laughs) Anyway.
0: And what George Romero does in the film is not only create this crazy world and, you know... Do all this, hey, did you know that we're just zombies when we go to the mall? It's also filled with fun comic book action. So it does all the stuff that I love about movies in, I'm going to say, a compact form, even though, like I said, it's over 120 minutes, Mm -hmm. but that it just delivers. Mm -hmm. Like there's looking at Dawn of the Dead in its theatrical version, the one that I fell in love with. There's not much I would change because it all is of a piece. How about you? Do you like Dawn of the Dead?
1: I love it, of course. Uh, The first time I saw it, I was 11 years old. Also rented it from Roger's video, and it was a grueling experience. It is so violent. Well, I remember, because I'd seen Night of the Living Dead. I thought it would be along the same lines, but it opens, you know, in the midst of chaos. The zombie apocalypse is already three weeks in. The, The TV station is closing down and you know nobody knows what's happening and everyone's running around and then it cuts to this housing project where the people in the housing project are not returning their dead uh, which is part of the rules of the martial law and the police come in to take it down and they start yelling racist things so already it establishes this totally dysfunctional worlds that we're in which which was difficult for me as an 11 year old entering this world
0: especially that you're used to films following certain rules i'm used to movies that open with normality Mm -hmm. and i remember with that police siege that happens at the beginning of that film that the violence is piled on at such a an absurd degree. I, at age 11, my eyes almost <laughs> popped out of my head. Like when
1: the, the woman zombie bites out of the guy's arm and bites out of his neck. And then a little later, it cuts to this scene where it's just a bunch of zombies sitting around the room, like, you know, nibbling on legs. Yeah, like, exactly. That, that was so disturbing to me. And then... Shortly after that, the zombie gets his head cut off by the helicopter.
0: And I think what that movie does really well is just having set piece after set piece mm. as well, like suspense ones, like that part you talk about where the zombie gets his head cut off or Ken Forey has to blow away some zombie children who pop out of a closet. Mm. It's just like a roller coaster ride. And I think that's what makes me love it so much. And it's constructed in a way that when I watch it over again, I don't go oh, well, I've seen this before. I know how it ends. I still get wrapped up in it Mm -hmm. in, like, a John Woo film because it's constructed so well. And, like, it makes such great use of the mall as a space. Absolutely. Uh,
1: So Robin Wood talks about the monster in horror film as the return of the repressed. The monster is the product of normality, and it comes to challenge normality. And because it's the product of the status quo, you can... You know the progressive horror movie when it's over, you think the status quo is monstrous. Yes. If the monster is defeated and everything goes back to normal, then it's a reactionary horror film. Mm -hmm. So in Dawn of the Dead, and this is also key to what bothered me so much about the movie when I was a kid, the zombies take over. Yes. Like there's there's it's unrelentingly bleak. The movie ends with the last two survivors helicoptering off with four hours worth of fuel and they're probably not going to survive but robin wood might also point out that's not such a bad thing because
0: the corrupt society is over now but what i found really interesting even as a teenager watching the film is that the characters for all intents and purposes get everything that they want in the mall sure like they have everything and they just get bored and they hate their life yeah And it's only when the bikers break in, led by Tom Savini... Yes. ...that one of them decides that they have to fight back because having this stuff, even though they're miserable, is all that's giving them meaning. Yeah, that's true. At the end, when they escape, it's about starting something new. Like, they're not going to approach it from this consumerist society side. And
1: it's interesting how meaningless, you know, the institutions start to look in the, the mall context. We see the couple go out on a date... We see him propose marriage, mm-hmm. but it's pathetic. And the woman eventually takes more and more power as the film goes on.
0: Yeah. I mean, George Romero says that they did shoot another ending where uh, one character commits suicide and then um, the woman jumps in the helicopter blade, which mm-hmm. slices her head off. And according to him, they only change it because the effect didn't look that good. Yeah. But Tom Savini says they never shot that. And I think that I would probably have a different reaction of the film if it did end that way because mm. that's a real downer of an ending yeah and i think the little bit more optimistic direction accompanied with this really cheesy like <laughs> yeah, uh, march when he runs up I th- it really cements it as the movie that i love most of all one last point from robin wood uh who i'm clearly relying on heavily for this discussion <laughs> but- oh hello robin how's it going <laughs> uh,
1: but he points out that You know, the posse at the end of the first Night of the Living Dead and the bikers in Dawn of the Dead. Uh, point at an alternate direction that society can go in in the midst of crisis which is fascism Mm -hmm.
0: i I should also before we get off the subject talk about how the violence in the film really affected me not as a person but also as a filmmaker Mm -hmm. because dawn of the dead was the first time where i watched violence in a way that was pushed to such a level that it wasn't just a visceral reaction out of me it was a visceral reaction of humor Like it was Mm. cartoony. Mm. George Romero supposedly actually coined the term splatstick while making the film. And it's the first time that I went, whoa, this is so over the top that my only reaction is to laugh at it. And it's something that I've kind of taken and implemented in my own filmmaking from then on. Mm. Because after that, when I started making movies, it's my little video camera. The first thing I would go to is heads being lopped off and blood shooting (laughs) up in the air, people losing their hands and screaming in agony. Sure. Because that's an easy thing to go to. But you could just look at Dawn of the Dead and how to see that captured so beautifully. And George Romero never really used violence in that kind of humorous way, like so many buckets of blood Mm -hmm. after that And I think that's because he did it so well in Dawn of the Dead. Why play the same song over again? Do you like Day of the Dead? I love Day of the Dead. Uh, I can understand why people go, oh, I like Day of the Dead the most. Mostly because it's like the underdog of the family. Yeah. It was pretty critically um, reviled when it came out. I think that now it's considered a classic. Like, there's no argument there. Yeah. It's a more talky film, but it's also a more claustrophobic film. And I think both of those things work well together. It
1: has the best zombie effects, Mm -hmm. I think, ever. Ever, frankly, no, yeah, no, yeah. no
0: contest. Uh,
1: I like how, as the Living Dead movies went on, George Romero becomes interested in the evolution of the zombies,
0: which is something that, like, real hardcore fans hate with zombies. But Romero himself said, "Where else can I go with this?" Yeah,
1: and you know, Day of the Dead coming in 1985 in the middle of the Reagan era. Mm-hmm. You know, you know where I'm going. It's yeah. so familiar. But uh, this uh, searing indictment of military culture, which. In this context, you've got the military, you know, what, 50 feet below the earth yeah. trying to maintain whatever authority it still has. Maintain these hierarchies. That, yeah. That's,
0: when it, it can't exist anymore yeah, because
1: it, it's gone. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. And I know a lot of people had problems with... Joseph Pilato's performance. I love
0: Joseph Pilato's performance in this movie. I
1: love it, but, and this is my very last reference to Robin Wood. <laughs> <laughs> As he pointed out, is his version of masculinity really any more cartoonish than Sylvester Stallone's? No.
0: <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's not. Yeah. And I think that something that we should point out about these zombie films and most of George Romero's cinema is that they are films populated by actors who almost never acted again Yeah. in like lead roles. Like if other than Ken Forey, who went off to have his own little career because
1: most of them aren't that good, frankly. No,
0: and I think Dwayne that, Jones is good. Dwayne Jones is very good. Yeah. And, I think that that's just the aesthetic that Romero likes, which is casting kind of unknowns in film Mm -hmm. that give him this rougher, shod quality, which you could also say that his filmmaking is like that. Like, Mm. George Romero was always an indie guy from the beginning to pretty much the end of his career, and Day of the Dead is actually a reaction to the first script that he wrote was this big, giant epic with people Mm. training zombies, and there was a big um, truck called Dead Reckoning that actually showed up in Land of the Dead. Mm. And the studio said, we will give you this money, but you have to deliver an R rating. And George Romero went, there's absolutely no way that I can do that. Dawn of the Dead was, was released unrated in cinemas, not even an X or anything like that, because they know that it just couldn't go out. And so Day of the Dead, why it's so small and compact is because... He had to get a lot less money to make a movie with the same themes, Mm -hmm. but he could put as much violence as he wanted in it. So the year is 2005.
1: You hear that George Romero is back making another zombie movie. Holy
0: shit, I'm excited. How excited? I'm so excited. (laughs) I saw the movie. If I'm not mistaken, me and my friends had just graduated high school. Mm -hmm. And we were on a trip in Toronto. Uh, we went to the Pacific Mall, we went camping, we went to a bunch of places, and I said, we have to go see Land of the Dead, we have to find a cinema. They're like, okay, uh, y- you know, you've shown us all the clips from the movies, we watched Dawn of the Dead 30 times this year, so yeah, we're gonna go. I think we went to Mississauga, mm. in a theater, I finally found one, and we watched it. And I went, eh. <laughs> I, that was good, I guess. Yeah, I had a similar reaction, but I I haven't seen it since it came out.
1: But I feel fondly towards Land of the Dead. It has a really good performance from John Leguizamo. It does. And I'm always happy to see Je- Dennis Hopper. <laughs> yeah,
0: slumming in a little I'm bit. Yes, the movie has like a good B-movie cast. It, it does, It also yeah. has
1: Asia Argento in it.
0: Yeah, doing uh, martial arts in a zombie pit.
1: It's a compromised film, but I think some of the ideas in it are are pretty nifty. Like the idea that, so it's, I don't know, 30 years after day yeah. of the dead and and now society has kind of built itself back up yeah uh society exists kind of like in parallel to these zombies and it, it's kind of like high rise or something where there's this rich person's apartment building or this rich person's mecca called fiddler's green i think it is <laughs> yes. presided over by dennis hopper and they all uh, zombies i hate
0: those guys
1: they they all live happily uh, having their rich person's li- lives while the zombies are outside and while the humans outside have to fend for themselves mm-hmm. and It's not subtle, and it's also not subtle when the zombies take over Fiddler's Green and Dennis Hopper yells at them, You have no right! But I like it. (laughs) George Romero's film um, career has never been one of subtlety. And he definitely is somebody who, as it went on, began to think of himself more and more as a social commentator. And you can see that in the two Zombie films that followed, which are bad.
0: Oh man! I mean, we were both at its world premiere I, in the Ryerson Cinema at Midnight at, Madness. I was at Diary of the
1: Dead. It was great seeing George Romero on stage. You know, I was, uh I guess, eighteen at the time. Very excited. Uh,
0: very disappointed. When very disappointed.
1: And then Survival of the Dead, is which just,
0: I also saw its world premiere, yeah. which I will never forget. The actor on stage during the Q and A going. I'd do one take and be like, George, you want me to do it again? I think I figured it out. And George would go, nah, 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 it's good. Let's move on. <laughs> yep. And yep, the film reflects that.
1: Diary of the Dead has this definite quality of like an old man trying to understand YouTube.
0: I will never forget Diary of the Dead starts with a paramedic delivering a spin kick to a zombie. <laughs> and I, at the time I went, huh, this is not the uh, dead films that I remember. So enough about that. Let's jump back. How familiar are you with
1: his non-zombie films have you seen most of them yes i have yeah
0: and martin the vampire one that he made between night and dawn is one that i've actually seen multiple times Mm -hmm. because it's a very easy one to recommend to people when they go oh yeah i love uh dawn of the dead i'll be like have you seen martin george romero's other film Mm -hmm. now this one was made by his company at the time in an attempt with uh richard rubinstein to show people they could make a film for a lower budget And then they could move on to making non-horror pictures. Mm. So it's a vampire film. Martin is kind of an awkward teenager.
1: uh, Maybe he's 18, 19, who moves back to uh, Pennsylvania to live with his uncle. Or is it his elderly cousin?
0: Yeah, I believe it's his cousin.
1: Yeah, who is a God-fearing man who is very suspicious of Martin being a vampire. And uh, tries putting garlic in the house and putting up crosses and everything.
0: And warning him that if anybody dies, he's going to kill Martin. And Martin is going around and killing people. And
1: it's very ambiguous as to whether or not Martin actually is a vampire.
0: George Romero said in a book that I read about him called The Zombies at a Pittsburgh that he felt he could only approach the film if he knew whether he was a vampire or not. He believed he was not.
1: Okay. Yes. And I think that's probably accurate. We see some of Martin's fantasy life which is in black and white and is filmed like a very romantic, traditional vampire story. And that's contrasted to Martin's reality, which is he runs around town uh, either uh, drugging people and cutting them with a razor blade and drinking their blood or attacking them with a syringe. So you think of the very sexualized vampire of myth And this is more like a rapist vampire.
0: Yeah, he actually does rape them after he knocks them out. And he's in
1: general, uh, a teenager who's very awkward with sex. The vampire is kind of a wish fulfillment fantasy for him. I I always got the sense that he might be gay. Yes. Is that intentional, do you think?
0: I think it is. The thing about Martin, who's played by John Amplis in the film, is that very weedy and kind of sweaty looking Mm. the entire time, is that you can feel that his environment is what made him who he is. I think the film goes to great lengths to say, this is not someone that was necessarily born this way. It's his family and the way that he was raised that made him react in a way that, I guess I'm a vampire. That's the only way I can kind of express myself.
1: And also what's very critical is that he's in Pennsylvania after a period of depression. As in so many Romero films, society is basically crumbling. There's not much work The church has burned down, so they're holding church services at, I don't know, it looks like a barn, and they're they're asking people to sell their belongings to raise money for the church. The institutions are even crumbling in this town. This is
0: a film that I have no problems classifying into the neorealist, because the way that it's shot, Romero did it with a very small crew over an actual extended period of time, and it's so kind of grungy looking Mm. in the way that everything appears. Mm. Especially the way that the film explores Martin having a relationship with someone else. Mm. A woman who's very depressed and the need to connect is just not happening. And also Martin becomes a minor celebrity
1: on local radio because he keeps calling into a radio show and talking about
0: his life as a vampire and they make fun of him and call him the count do we want to talk about the ending of martin i think we should skip listening if you haven't seen it yet i mean it doesn't really ruin the experience mm-hmm. if anything like hitchcock says once you know what's coming it's more <laughs> suspenseful which is that the woman that martin is seeing commits suicide and martin's uh, elderly cousin ends up brutally murdering him in his bed mm-hmm. and What the film is trying to say with that is very interesting because it's not through Martin's own actions that he gets murdered. It's actually through the relationships he was not able to maintain that death comes upon him. Just like me. Should I (laughs) murder you in your bed if I staked you and I'm like, you was a vampire.
1: Justin, if anyone's going to kill me, I hope it's you. (laughs) What are some of the other Romero movies people should check out?
0: Night Riders is very good. Have
1: you had a chance to see that one? I just ordered the Blu-ray after he died, so it's coming.
0: Knight Riders is a film that was supposed to lift Romero out of the horror movie gutter. Mm -hmm. It's this epic starring Ed Harris about a team of self-proclaimed knights who do kind of like uh, Renaissance fair stuff on motorcycles and the ideals that they're trying to live up to and failing to actually achieve them. Tom Savini has probably hit the biggest role of his career as Ed Harris's kind of nemesis kind of. It's a very complicated film. It's also a film that's two and a half hours. In the book that I read, they talk about how it's the film's failure that really doomed Romero to a career of making horror films and nothing but and they don't understand why it failed so badly they talk about releasing strategies the fact that it was so long and the most frustrating part is the movie's really good and at the time the distributor actually loved the movie as well but it's just a bunch of circumstances out of their control that made it that hey George you're going to be making zombie movies for the rest of your career Mm. or more specifically you You're going to be trying to make horror movies and they just won't happen Mm. because if there's anything in George Romero's career that will define it is the fact that he did not make enough movies. Mm -hmm. He made only about 15. I understand that after Survival of the Dead, he
1: wanted to do a remake of Deep Red. Did he? Yes, that was announced, but it didn't work. Wow, that would
0: have been weird. Oh, you
1: know what else is really cool about uh, seeing Diary of the Dead at TIFF was Dario
0: Argento was in the audience. Oh, that's right, because Mothers of Tear was playing that year. Yeah, yeah. And uh, George Romero and Dario Argento knew each other because Dario had produced Dawn of the Dead. He's the one who gave it the goblin music. He's the one who cut it down to much shorter, into more of an action movie under the title Zombie. And they actually collaborated on a movie called Two Evil Eyes. Which I have seen. Oh, George Romero's segment is not Yeah, And
1: actually, I think that maybe more than anything is what kind of put me off exploring more of his
0: non-zombie movies. So. But like other great movies, Creepshow, most people have seen that I've, one. I, I've seen half
1: of Creepshow. Yeah,
0: and that one's really, really good. Uh, the dark half is interesting. I don't know if it completely works, the Stephen King adaptation. Mm-hmm. I don't particularly like Monkey Shines. It is what it is, and it has its fans. That was actually a big studio picture, and when that tanked, that was like the final nail in George Romero's coffin. And if you look at the 90s, they're mostly a string of almost halves he was supposed to direct a uh, reboot of the mummy for a long time that oh, wow. fell through he ended up making straight to video films like bruiser
1: which are not very good i as a torontonian would always swell with pride knowing that george romero in his later years chose to live in toronto
0: not only chose but became a canadian citizen yeah and was that because of bush <laughs> I, I don't think. know yeah. uh maybe the idea of Being able to make movies with Canadian funding, it was like a siren song Uh, calling to him. I don't understand why he didn't get to make more movies. Like, was he too prickly? Was he difficult? He's always a filmmaker who said that he wanted to do things independently. Probably not enough of the movies were profitable. Yeah, to the point that... There's a funny story that he was taking a meeting about a movie with an agent and the agent kept answering his phone during the meeting Mm. and George Romero just got up after the third ring and went, all right, I'm out of here. See ya. (laughs) And that's a man that sticks by his convictions, which is very admirable. And he has like three, no doubt, classics under his belt. So, and he's considered one of the horror directors of all time, like him, John Carpenter, David Cronenberg. Yeah. Well, Universal let him make Land of the Dead. And that movie was not as financially profitable as they thought it was going to be. So it stalled his career once again. So rest in peace, George Romero. I will continue to watch Dawn of the Dead and all your movies. Over and over and over again. George, wherever you are, I will watch Knight Riders. (laughs) Yes. And you will enjoy it. Yes. Because you'll feel bad if you don't like it, right? The man just passed away. All right. So it's letters time. It's
1: letter time. It's letter time. Why do I
0: always say it like that? I just (laughs) open it up right to you. This letter is from Ray Hammonds. And the subject line is, how do you watch? It goes... As someone who consumes a ton of cinema myself... From a keyhole. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, keyholes are for (laughs) peeping. Oh, deep cut reference. As someone who consumes a ton of cinema myself, I'm often curious about not just what other cinephiles are watching, but how they watch. Seeing a movie in theaters is self-explanatory, but how do you guys watch movies at home? Do you follow a routine or regimen? Darken the room? Power off cell phone? I do 50 (laughs) (laughs) push-ups. I can only watch movies as if I got a sweat gun. <laughs> I feel a burn, or is it more of a case-by-case basis? It's fine to fold laundry or vacuum during Larry the Cable Guy's witless protection, <laughs> but does peeping at Carlos Reyes or Olivier Assayas' blind spot warrant a more concentrated effort? Yes. Where do you draw the line or delineate between what's worthy of your utmost focus and what's not? Do you hold value in watching a film in one sitting or accept that sometimes you'll be seeing it in chunks due to real life getting in the way? Thanks for the weekly entertainment, guys. And that's Brian Hammonds. Thank you very much for your letter. Will, you're a man who sits back tying yourself to the couch to watch it in the utmost condition,
1: right? Um, Let me see. I try not to watch movies for the first time, at least when I'm like doing laundry or, <laughs> yes. or, doing, or doing my dishes. I try to even... Even if it's a witless protection, which I have not seen. I I mean, the reason that there aren't a lot of movies that I I watch for the first time while doing something else is because I don't bother with those movies.
0: (laughs) Okay, yes. I I
1: generally watch movies that I want to see. I definitely... Uh, will watch movies in more than one sitting even though uh, absolutely it's
0: very know, rare unless i'm watching movies with someone else these days that i watch it in one straight through sitting life gets in the way yeah w- w- what can i tell you we're uh, busy people
1: it's a, if it's a movie like in a Pitchet pong movie or or a siming <laughs> lang movie or something where you have to like get in the zone for it see it in the theater <laughs> yeah basically i mean i have trouble watching in a pitch pong movie at home i t- i try to look for opportunities to
0: see it in a theater mm-hmm. i think that's very important to be enveloped by it and not distract because when you're at home it's so easy to be distracted by stuff yes the feeling that something better could be going on even if you're watching a classic film as for my viewing habits uh, so often they're dictated these
1: days by this very (laughs) podcast that you're listening to the important cinema club
0: i watch a lot of movies on my computer it's just easy for me to do it mostly because my partner does all of her work in the living room which is where the tv is i can't watch movies on my laptop why not? I just get too distracted. Can't oh, do it. I have a big screen on my computer. And, yeah, you've got a desktop computer. Yeah, there. and just don't, like, have any other windows open. Because the second that happens, you're lost. I can't. You can't do I it? I can't resist it. <laughs> yeah, you're like, it's impossible. what if somebody liked one of my tweets? Yeah, I want that, I want that validation. Uh, so what it boils down to is basically try to go see it in theaters if you can. If not, and it's an important movie that you're really looking forward to and want to watch... Just try to put the stuff away.
1: Or better yet, just don't see movies that are shit. (laughs)
0: Because I was starting
1: to think, well, yeah, theaters are good, but man, theaters are expensive. Not on Tuesdays. Five dollars at the Rainbow Cinema. Tuesday is when I see most major Hollywood movies. Yep, that's when I see mine too. (laughs) Yeah. What did I see this week? Oh, yeah, I saw uh, Spider-Man Homecoming Mm -hmm. on Tuesday. Gotta say,
0: kind of liked it. (laughs) Whoa! Yeah, Yeah, I thought it was fun. (laughs) I was Michael Keaton? He's great. Ah, we could have saved this for the end of the episode. Oh, okay. We'll talk about something else. <laughs> so people can write us at Podcast at gmail.com. And as per usual, we have a Patreon episode this week. It's on the Simpsons movie. 10th anniversary, baby. <laughs> which will uh, send me a message as a joke. And I said, nope, it's too late. We're talking about it. <laughs> but for people that are not Patreon subscribers, we're putting on a contest right now. We are. So for people that are currently subscribed or will subscribe... Yeah, probably before the end of the month, so August 1st, you could win a prize. Three prizes, actually. Wow. And that, like, you could My win. My hand in marriage. <laughs> one of them. <laughs> you don't win all three. So they go a copy of what I've been calling uh, Monsters with a Movie Camera, which is a recut and resubtitled film that i made based on a Cayman rider movie that played in theaters a year ago uh, yes i saw this this
1: film at the royal when you showed it yeah and as will said it's my chunking express <laughs> <laughs> because because justin has spent 2 years or perhaps even more working on this film impossible horror and like Wonka, why making ashes of time he needed to dust the cobwebs out of his head refresh himself with a with a quick eat
0: dirty movie yes and that's what that film is it's never been released on dvd before and uh one lucky person is going to get a dvd copy of this film with commentary <laughs> between me and will uh, really yes that's right remember i talked about that uh, okay sure. hey. all right <laughs> listen there's tons of surprises i'm, on this I'm learning about this
1: for the first time but yes i will record a commentary track
0: <laughs> i will also be uh giving away as a prize the five probably six issues of the laser blast film society zine it's a screening series i do in toronto every now and then i make a zine uh about the film that we're showing. Uh, will. Has has written for it yes I have um, there's issues about stuff like Wong Jing or Troy Hark and they're not available anywhere you can't buy them online and one winner will get all six copies of that mm-hmm. and finally the big one I will be mailing out A pack of Batman Forever trading cards, (laughs) 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 unopened. (laughs) Who knows what they could contain? These are originals. They are. These are not, or you know, some. Ironically, a reproduction. Yeah. Also a mystery prize. Yeah. So there, there's. You got three chances to win as long as you subscribe to the Important Cinema Club podcast Patreon, and when you do that, you also get the other side of Justin Will. (laughs) Well, uh, even if you don't
1: win. Uh, one of these prizes you still get hours of content of us talking about
0: mostly garbage yes and look there's what like 31 people that are patreon subscribers go on patreon become a subscriber to the important cinema club five dollars a month so what are we doing next week will uh my favorite filmmaker of all time mr christopher nolan (laughs) okay so he has a new movie dunkirk out my name is the internet (laughs) yes okay and um because we want those hits desperately yeah we're gonna do an episode on him it's because it's now or never really yeah like, you know. <laughs> like we're never gonna do an episode of Christopher Nolan yeah we're getting all the ones that we said that we would never do remember when we started the podcast we're like we're never gonna do George Romero what are we gonna say about him <laughs> <laughs> uh so we're gonna watch probably the following and a bunch of his movies I assume I assume it will be a wide-ranging discussion yeah I've seen them all so yeah. we can we could talk about them all right okay so my name's Justin McClue. I'm Will Sloan thanks for listening comic-con weekend
1: will <laughs> are you- <laughs> Just saying that makes me laugh. Are you going to be
0: excited going online? Uh, oh, to t- see all the panels, to see Chris Hardwick? <laughs> that's right. And um, learn about what new superheroes or perhaps supervillains are coming to your favorite comic book universes. I, I can't wait to see the surprise appearance by Mark Hamill at the <laughs> Star Wars panel or whatever. Oh, there's no Star Wars panel because Disney has their own convention now. Oh, okay. Yes. Excuse yeah, me. but obviously I haven't been keeping track. Th- that's a real boss move. Yes, it is. I mean, they own everything at this point. Yeah. right so why not yeah so are you a convention goer
1: uh i would not self-identify as a convention goer but i have
0: been to conventions yeah mostly to see people like adam west
1: right uh i went to comic-con uh sorry i went to fan expo which is the toronto equivalent of comic-con last year so that i could see the the adam west burt ward panel and then i walked around the
0: convention and then i left <laughs> i remember i didn't like it. when i moved to toronto Fan Expo blew my mind. Cause they had everything that I would've wanted. I remember one year I went, to see bruce campbell to give a q a look at him he's up on stage the guy yeah. i've seen him now it a was different times. then
1: because that might be the other fan expo i've been to which oh really was like the bruce two, campbell 2009
0: one? yeah where, where adam
1: west was also at that one
0: i remember because you yes. couldn't take flash photography of him and yes. people would be hustled away.
1: so i've been to two and i i remember having a really good time at that first one yeah because the the, the convention at that stage i mean it was still massive but it wasn't quite what it is now hmm Uh, I also remember uh, randomly seeing Ken Russell on the convention floor.
0: Really? Uh, Oh, he must have been doing the screening of
1: The Devils that he which I which I later went to, and I I remember seeing Ken Russell at a booth, and he looked exactly like
0: that portrait of Winston (laughs) (laughs) Churchill—just this big, scary, scowling old man. Uh, Ken Russell in his final days was as crusty as you could get. Were you at that screening? I was at that screening of The Devils. (laughs) Oh my god! Every question that they asked him, he'd be like, "No, yes." Or like, I, I don't well, know. I
1: remember, I think it was Richard Krauss doing the interview. He was, because he wrote
0: a book on the devils. Where he
1: said something like, um, uh, y- who are some of your uh, f- favorite filmmakers? And Ken Russell goes, Ken Russell! <laughs> yeah. And he says, didn't didn't you at one point uh, uh, s- say that uh, you wanted to be the British Fellini? And he said, yes, Fellini, he's an
0: adequate substitute. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> anyway, but Fan ben Expo... Bo- I was so excited. I remember the first time I went, I actually somehow weasel my way into getting a weekend pass so I could go for more days because they had everything that you wanted. I'm a guy that loves comic books. I could go get comic books, go see my filmmakers. They had an amazing DVD booth where it felt like Media Blasters and other companies just dumped their out of print overstock that you could buy for like $4. Oh, it was heaven. Horror, there was like a horror aisle you could visit. And then uh, yeah, that stuff kind of just went away. <laughs> well, I don't
1: know. The problem when I was there last year, uh, I thought it was a little boring seeing all these booths that were just kind of the same sort of stuff, which is like a vintage looking T shirt with Beetlejuice on it or <laughs> yeah, something. That's right. Or all of these, you know, big studio booths for like Game of Thrones or yeah. whatever. And and like I don't like this this feeling you get where it's like fan culture is this niche culture but it's all but it's like spider-man it's the most popular stuff in the world
0: well i like the idea of a convention floor to go discover stuff that like you wouldn't have found any other way yeah i remember like the first few times i went i would go down artist alley which is where all the independent artists uh (laughs) are and I would do the mistake of making eye contact with them and then feeling bad and buying, like, a pile of books for the promo. I, I hate that. And That's I, why
1: I never go to those areas.
0: <laughs> I remember that a uh, friend of the podcast, Andrew Barr, had a booth and I had bought, like, five of his comic books <laughs> just because I made eye contact with them. And, and now,
1: like, now here he is. <laughs> yeah, he did the, the cover for Teddy Bomb. Yeah. <laughs> So it's good actually. You should maybe you should make eye contact with more. Artists. Yeah,
0: maybe. And before we go, I just wanted to let people know that I did receive an email from a loyal listener asking about the Teddy Bomb Blu-ray and the fact that the shipping was incredibly high. And I didn't know this was the case, so what I did was I went and fixed it. It's now half of what it used to be. In Canada and the United States, it should be probably around ten dollars and the Blu-ray is now $15. So it'll cost you about 25 bucks to get a copy of it. And if you write in the notes of your order that you're an important Cinema Club listener, I will toss in uh, something a little bit special. You can buy that Blu-ray at teddybomb.com and just do it now while we're having this super summer sale if you ever meant to watch it at some point in time, which you should, because it's amazing.